0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church this morning. Uh, We're going to start with worship, so if you'll please stand and join us.
1: like to start off by welcoming you here this morning. My name is Ryan Mayer. I am the youth pastor here at Bethel. Our senior pastor this morning is actually not here. He is preaching at a church here in Sarasota called Newtown Gospel. It's actually a church that we've been working with some. One of our elders, Scott Kaufman, has been preaching there quite a bit, and it's usually down there about two times a month. And so we just are excited that he's down there. He was excited to preach, and this morning you guys get to listen to me. So Hopefully you enjoy that. Just a couple of announcements I'd like to highlight. The first one is we want to invite you back. Next Sunday is going to be the start of our missions conference. So every year we do either a renewal meetings or a missions conference. They kind of rotate. This year is our missions conference. We have Tim and Julie Brown. They are actually here. They've been in the mission field for over 40 years working with Native Americans. You can see their picture. They're actually here this morning as well. Somewhere around here. There they are, sitting over there. So if you have any questions that they'd be the better ones to ask this morning following the service. But Tim has we had asked him to come and we asked him just to give us a focus on missions. And so his theme is live to rescue from Galatians 5 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And it's the idea of Christ has set us free from our sins, but not just to live our lives in a bubble, not just to worry about ourselves and our family but to use that freedom to bring other people in freedom as well. So he's going to be focusing on that. So we're going to have three sessions. We're going to have Sunday morning. He'll be bringing the message next Sunday morning. We'll have Sunday evening and then Monday evening as well. So we encourage you to mark that down. Also want to let you know, every year around school time, we go and we have all of the parents of the school-age kids from college all the way down. If you're in college, you fill your own paper out. But from all the way down, fill out a form that you give your name, what school you're at, and just a prayer request. And those forms are out on the table in the foyer right now. When you fill those out, Jeannie will actually take those, get them all together, and then over the next number of weeks, we will be looking for people to sign up to pray for them. And I would really encourage you, one, to fill one out, but then also when the school year rolls around and we have the ability to start praying for them to pick one, I know we pick one for each one of our children and they have somebody's for the last year, they pray for that person. And it really draws us closer together as a family. And I know as a parent, I'd love it if somebody is praying for any one of my three kids every Sunday. So we encourage you to sign up for that. But we also, I'm going to go ahead and have you stand again because we're going to go into worship one more time and I'll pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you love us, how you care for us, Lord. We pray that you would just allow us now as we go into worship to give all that we have to you, to focus on you, Lord. And we pray that after that, as I give the message as well, that all that comes out of my mouth will be what you want in your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: you yeah. yeah. i i His hands, his feet, my savior, wrong that curses.
1: God, we thank you so much that you are wonderful, that you are great, that we can serve you. Lord, I pray that we would realize that, we would understand why we serve you and who you are, and that we would give all that we have to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So this morning, if you want, you can turn to Matthew 5. We're going to be there in a second. I titled the i have the title of my sermon is The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. No, I'm not arrogant. I didn't do that because I think that this is going to be the greatest sermon ever preached. I would probably bet good money that this won't be the, even the greatest sermon ever preached here in Bethel. I could say that there's been some great sermons given But this is a title that has been given to this sermon for years and years. And it's what we describe as the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, we're going to look at the first part of it. We're actually going to be looking at the first part, which is the Beatitudes. And we're going to focus on four of them this morning. And then when I preach in October, again, we're going to do the rest of them. So if you like what you hear this morning... Come back in October again, and we'll hear the rest of the continuation. But if you have your Bible, we're going to be Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can see it. It's going to be on the screen as well. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So why is this called the greatest sermon ever preached? Is it just because Jesus did it? And Jesus was the best preacher we've ever heard? No, I don't think that's the case because Jesus taught a whole lot. But the reason this has been called the greatest sermon ever given is because what you're going to see is this is the largest collection of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God not only looks in eternity, but looks here on earth. And we're going to see Jesus continue on. When I talk about the Beatitudes, that's just the very first part. We could spend months just going through this particular sermon. But what I want you to start off by realizing is that the people that we're going to be hearing this message, we're going to be hearing a message that completely is going to turn upside down their worldview. This sermon has also been called, this is where we get the idea of, it's called the Upside Down Kingdom. That things we do as Christians, things that we do here in the church, do not make sense to people who are not believers. They don't understand why we do certain things. They don't understand why we act certain ways. And this is going to be the first instance where Jesus starts hitting on that. And we're going to get to that in a second, but I wanted to first look at, if you are in my youth group, you know there's one word I always say we have to look at, context. I actually just saw a couple of youth kids mouth it context. I always like to first look into what in the world is happening before this. So what we're going to see is when you read it's Matthew 5, so there's ch- chapters 1 through 4. And in chapters 1 through 4, we see Jesus being born. We see him go out to the wilderness to be to fast and to p- spend time out there in prayer. It's also the time when he was tempted by Satan. Then we see him come back from the desert, and we see him call his 12 disciples. I think the, the first thing we have to realize is when you see him call his 12 disciples, that doesn't just mean from the get-go there was only 12 people. There's actually quite a few. But getting into this, we, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he, dis, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, when we hear the word mountain, I assume for some of us, what comes into mind is the Rockies, the Smokies, We don't necessarily think Palmer Hill is a mountain over there. That's probably the highest point we have here in Sarasota, but we don't think of it as a mountain. Well, where Jesus was teaching, they don't know the exact mountain, but they know where it was, which would have been in Galilee. Galilee doesn't really have mountains. They have hillsides. So Jesus would have gone up the side of Palmer Hill over there, Where they think the mountain was, was probably only about 300 feet high. So when you first look at it and you read that he goes up the mountain, we get this idea of he's trying to get away from the crowds. Because when we go to the mountains, it's usually to get away from people, right? You don't go up to the mountains to be in a bunch of crowds and stuff like that. You get away from them. But what we're going to see here is he's not trying to get away from the people. He's trying to get a better vantage point. So when you see it says that his disciples came to him, that word disciples, yes, talks about 12, but it is also a general word used to describe just a follower of Jesus. So in this instant, he's not just teaching 12 people. He's teaching a giant group of people. So why would he go up on the side of a hill to do that? Well, obviously we here, I'm speaking, and I can speak to all of you without yelling because I have microphones. Microphones did not exist back in this time. So they needed natural ways to teach. Jesus didn't want to be shouting his entire sermon. So you go up on a hillside, and because of how the terrain is, your voice carries so Jesus, to start off, wasn't walking up on a mountain to get away from people. He was walking up on this hillside to be able to speak better to them, to be able to actually let them hear what he was saying. And that's important because what we're going to see is there's going to be people sitting and listening to what Jesus says, and I'm sure they are going to go away angry. Angry. Because the stuff that is going to come out of Jesus' mouth right now is not what they want to hear. Because what they want to hear as a Jewish person right now, your entire life you've been told a Messiah is coming. The Savior of us as a God's people is coming. And in, his, in a Jewish person's mind, the way that the Savior would come is he's going to come in, He's going to be a military leader and he's going to overtake the Romans because right now they're underneath the Romans. They hate the Romans. So when you hear this guy coming through town and he's teaching and he's healing people and people are starting to say, hey, this could be the guy, this could be the guy. So you show up saying, okay, Jesus, how are you going to fix us? How are you going to solve this whole situation? How are you going to get rid of the Romans? And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is not what you want to hear when you're looking for a military leader. That is not who you want to listen to. So, now what I want to do is get yourself in that mindset. Because the amazing thing about the Bible is the Bible was written to a specific group of people at a specific period of time, yes. But the Bible transcends all culture, all ethnicities, all time. But just because it does that doesn't mean that it doesn't help us to get in the mindset of who would first be reading these stories, So if you're in that mindset, let's start looking at these now. So the first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What in the world does that mean? Well, I'll tell you one thing. All of these beatitudes start with the word blessed. So let's start there. What does blessed mean? I don't speak Greek, but I can look it up. And the Greek word that for blessed here means happy. So I don't know about you, that makes it more confusing for me. Happy are the people who are poor in spirit. Happy are the ones who do this. Happy are those who mourn. But that word happy means something different. It's why we translate it as blessed. Meaning in the end the ones who follow these things will be the most deeply happy. So if you're searching, if you're not happy, Jesus is saying blessed and happy are going to be these people. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but these are the blessed people. So he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. How can you be poor in spirit? I believe the reason Jesus started off with this one, and it's the first thing he says in the Sermon on the Mount, is because this is the absolute foundation of Christianity. When we are poor, it means we don't have enough to buy something. So when we're poor in spirit, what Jesus is saying is we're not good enough. We are not good enough people to earn our salvation. No matter what I do, no matter how I act, being a good person doesn't mean anything. And this one's hard for me. You're going to see a number of these as I give you examples from my own life. This one's hard for me. My mom's here this morning, so you can ask her if this is actually true. But I was a pretty good kid. She always says I'm hard-headed, but I'm a good kid. I didn't party. I didn't really cause my parents hardly any problems. I've always been a nice guy. I've always, in my mind, treated people well. In general, I just think I've, I've been good. I've been moral. I don't have that testimony of I was in the pits and God brought me out I I looked at it the other day in my Bible. I have written down when I became a Christian. I became a Christian back in 98. And I went to church from little on up and have missed very few Sundays. I'm a good person. So for me to say I'm not good enough, that's hard. I don't want to admit that I'm not good enough. I don't want to admit to you guys that I'm a sinner. I don't want to say, I need help. Our pride doesn't let us do that. But what Jesus is saying is he's saying, until you realize that, Ryan, the kingdom of heaven is not yours. Until you realize being a good, moral person, until you realize just showing up to church on Sunday and never thinking of anything else for the rest of the week, Ryan, that's not good enough. And that could be really sad. Nobody wants to get cut from a baseball team and be bad. Nobody wants to be the worst at something and need help. I'll give you an example from my own life. I played college baseball for two years, and uh, My freshman year, we started off the baseball season, and this is not a lie or a joke, 0-42. We lost 42 straight games. I don't even know how it's possible, but we did it. And I remember the one day at practice, one of the guys on our team goes, hey guys, have you thought about this? We were NCCAA. It's like the lowest division of sports that you can be. He's like, we're in the lowest division... And in that division, there's regions, and we were in the worst region, and we were the worst team in that region. He goes, "Have you ever, guys? If you guys thought about the fact that we might be the worst baseball team in the nation, <laughs> like literally." And we all sat there and we're stretching before practice, and we all just kind of looked at each other and we're like, "Sounds about right. We could be." <laughs> but in reality, most of us were, we were annoyed. Nobody wants to be the worst. Nobody wants to say, I'm not good enough. Nobody goes home and they got cut from their team and they're like, mom, dad, great news. I wasn't good enough. But as Christians, that is the foundation of Christianity. I'm not good enough, but there's hope. Jesus says, I know you're not good enough and I don't care I don't care that you are going to screw up. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't hate sin. He does. But when he's saying, I don't care that you're not going to be good enough because I'm going to die for you anyways. In fact, that is my love. If we were good enough, he wouldn't have needed to die. Or if we were good enough that he'd say, okay, well, I'll die for Ryan, but I won't die for this person over here because Ryan's a good guy. Him over here isn't. So that's what we have to start off with. Blessed are those who realize they're poor, who don't have enough and who can't do it on their own. So then he moves on and he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted." Again. So Jesus, you're saying, happy are those who are sad. Happy are those who are crying. And what we need to do is we need to look at what does it mean to mourn? And then what are they even mourning over? What they're mourning over is not, I've lost somebody in my life. Is not things in my bad or things in my life are going bad. Doesn't mean God doesn't comfort us in those times. He does, but that's not what he's saying. To people who mourn over what they mourn over is their sin. What we mourn over is the fact that we keep screwing up. But my question is, do we actually do that? Again, I'll give you another example from my own life. It's easier to use my own life than to try to find other ones. So there was an instance where, so in our family, we're trying to eat healthier, which I hate. I don't like vegetables. I don't like anything green. I, I just don't like to eat healthy. But I try. And so the one night, Carrie had left some soup for me. Youth groups heard this story, but she left some soup for me. And she's like, hey, that's for dinner. I'm like, okay, great. I didn't want to eat healthy soup. So I decided I was going to go to Chick-fil-A, got Chick-fil-A, ate it, made sure I got rid of all the evidence for when she came home from work. And then laying in bed, she's sitting there and we're just talking about different stuff. And I'm just like, hey, the soup was good. And she can read me. So she sits there and she just kind of stares at me for a second. She's like... And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, the soup was good. And she's like, oh, okay. And I sat there for about five minutes. And I felt like a complete idiot. Because I had just lied to my wife when, honestly, what was my wife going to do? She wasn't going to yell at me, she would have judged me very harshly (laughs) for not eating it. She wouldn't have hit me. There was no real ramifications. But I had lied. So I looked at her and I was like, Carrie, I'm sorry. I lied. And this could be a good story on how strong my morals are and how I didn't let my conscience, like I just said what was on my mind. But what I was hit more on was the side of, why was it so easy for me to lie? We laugh like it's something stupid. It's not eating soup. But in that instance, why was it so easy to look my wife in the face and lie to her? Because if I truly mourn over my sin, if I truly think what I do is bad and is wrong, that should break my heart. Because we know it says in Scripture that it breaks Jesus. It breaks God's heart. So he's saying, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who realize I hate the fact that I do this. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that there's probably going to be other times where I stupidly lie. But I want to get to the point where it doesn't just pop out that easy. Where I couldn't just walk away Because truthfully, in that moment, my conscience was getting on me. But if I would have gone to bed, I don't think I would have lost any sleep. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that comforter is Christ. He's the one that sits there and says, when you sin, come to me when it breaks your heart come to me because i will be there for you jesus gives us an image of a kingdom that is where sin is so hated when where people realize that they've done it and realize over and over that they are sinful it breaks their heart it's not a i feel bad it's a mourning it's a deep crying in my soul but if we're honest as long as it's not big things, we're fine, right? As long as nobody's really hurt. I mean, in that instance, would my wife have really been hurt if she would have never found out? Probably not. In fact, she laughed at me when I told her then, after she was initially angry. But does that break my heart? Continuing on, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this one was probably really hard for people to grasp to start off. Because remember, they're sitting there and they're asking for a leader. And if I asked you to give me 10 characteristics, your top 10 characteristics of a leader, most of us would probably not put meekness at the top of the list. Because when we think meek, we think weak. But that's not biblical meekness. The best definition I found is that meekness is strength under control. Meekness is knowing when to speak up, knowing when to talk, and knowing when to be humble. That is a leader. That is someone that should be controlling things in the kingdom of God. Jesus is a perfect example of that. Jesus was kind and humble and a wonderful leader. But when it came to dealing with the Pharisees, he called them a lot of names. When he walked into the temple and there was a bunch of stuff going on that he didn't like, He flipped over tables. He started whipping people. He started letting all the animals go. He knew when to stand up and when not to. Now, this is where we have to realize when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, usually our mind immediately goes to heaven. That's the end. That's where we all want to end up. We want to end up in heaven. But when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, The kingdom of God started the day that Jesus came to earth. Now, yes, there's an eternal life, and there is an end in heaven and where we will want to end up, and Christ will set up an earthly kingdom here. All of that, yes. But the kingdom of God is the here and now, right now. And we know that because we're going to see next time I preach that he talks about being peacemakers And later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about if somebody slaps you on one cheek, you turn the other cheek. Nobody's going to be slapping you in heaven. So he's not just talking about eternal life. He's talking about here and now on this earth, this is what the kingdom of God should look like. Because when Christians look and act the way that Jesus tells us we're supposed to act, people should be noticing. But the problem is, We don't find a good middle ground. Christians are usually seen as one way or the other. One is we are the weak people that just don't ever stand up, let people run all over us, and just things like, oh, well, God will deal with it, and Jesus loves them, and I love them, and so let them do what they want. Or we're the other ones that feel like we have to claw and hold on to every single freedom we have and we have to stand up and shout from the rooftops for everything. Biblical meekness is in the middle. It's knowing when to stand up and shout and it's knowing when to let God take care of it. Christ showed us that. And the reason he says they shall inherit the kingdom of they sh- they shall inherit the earth is because those are going to be the leaders. Think in your life. You have that one person that may not talk a whole lot. May not be the first one to speak up. But when you're in a group and they start talking, Everybody gets quiet. Not because they're angry, not because the person's an idiot, but they get quiet because there's this level of respect for them that people know, hey, if he speaks up, I better listen. He's not going to say something every time, so when he speaks up, we got to follow. That is meekness. Strength under control. And again, when people didn't know exactly what Jesus was saying, I'm sure there was people that walked away and were like, it's just another crazy religious guy. This is not who we want. It's just another rabbi. These guys are all going to talk, but they're not the ones that are going to actually save us. They're not the ones that are going to get rid of the Romans. And the last one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I think most of us know what hunger and thirst is. But we have to envision true hunger and thirst. This is not another example in my household, since we're trying to eat healthy. My kids don't enjoy it a a whole lot either. And we actually had someone over the other night, and my kids didn't want to eat their dinner, and so we told them, hey, that's fine, you don't have to eat it, but that's your dinner. And so the rest of the night, they kept walking out going, mom, dad, we are starving. We are so hungry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, just, I've learned my lesson. Just let me eat. So I was like, okay. We had quinoa. So I was like, I'll go warm up some quinoa for you. Well, you guys know they're not that hungry. I warmed it up and I stuck it down in, each, in front of each one of them and they all were just like, no, it's okay, take it back, take it back. <laughs> this is not true hunger and thirst. When you think of this hunger and thirst, you need to think of somebody who you haven't eaten in a week and I put down whatever your favorite food is. I put down a steak, a cheeseburger, pizza, whatever it is, and it sits in front of you. And you're just, you want so badly for that. And then when you get it, you want more and more. Now, when it comes to food, we can actually get full. But What Christ is saying here is, here on this side, you can continue to not be satisfied. You can continue to search and search. But how many of us in that time, when the food's put in front of us would say, no thanks, I'm not that hungry. Or no thanks, I'm kind of busy right now. I'll get to it when I get to it. No thanks, I'm tired. But we do that in our faith all the time. How do we become more righteous? We learn about God through scripture. We talk to God through prayer. And we commune with those around us in worship. Those are three main components of righteousness of gaining righteousness so when we have this idea of I just can't get enough of it that means I can't get enough of studying scripture I can't get enough time spending time in the Bible I can't get enough time praying I love going to church but are we like that there are a lot of days In my life, where I spend more time on fantasy football than I do reading the Bible, than I do praying, do I truly hunger and thirst for more? This morning we were talking about wisdom in Sunday school and this idea of to be wise, you do want people to correct you, you do want people to tell you how to do things, you do want to grow. How many of us just sit around somebody and say, hey, just teach me some more. Let's study the Bible. Probably not most of us. And when I read through all of these, I don't come out of this saying, man, I've got this under control. I come out of it saying, God, I have so far to go. But what I want us to realize today as we wrap up is that God and Jesus are sitting there and they're going, Ryan, I know you don't have it under control. I know you're not perfect. I know you have a long way to go. But that's okay. Okay. I love you, I care for you, and I died for you. So don't look at these things and continually just be, well, what's, what's the use in trying? There's no use. I'm never going to be perfect. I'm always going to screw up. I'm just never going to figure it out. Because this side of heaven, you won't be perfect. But if you live your life letting that beat you down, you will be of no use to people around you. If I say, well, I can't ever talk to people about sin or about Jesus because I don't have it all figured out, I will never be able to talk to people. So no matter where you are this morning, maybe you're like me, you've been in church your whole life, you've been a good person, but you don't have the passion and the fire God. I encourage you. Hungering and thirsting is not going to come without actually opening up the Bible. You're not one day just going to be like, oh, I love reading my Bible. I love spending an hour in it. It takes time. You're going to learn more. You're going to grow more. If you're on the side where you're not even a believer, and you sit here and you say, I thought I was good. I thought that I treated people well, and it doesn't mean that you don't. It doesn't mean all non-Christians are terrible people who are ruining us. There's some very great people out there. But the first one that Jesus said, we all have to realize that we are poor in spirit. We are not good enough. But Christ has bridged that gap. Now, if you stand with me, I'll close with prayer, and then when I'm done with the prayer, you guys are all dismissed. Dear God, Lord, we thank you so much that even though we are sinners, even though we've fallen short, even though we aren't good enough, that you love and care for us That even when I screw up, whether big things, little things, or in between, that you have shown us what we need to look like in this kingdom. Lord, that you've shown us these are not just things that we can pick and choose what we want, but that these are commands from you. So I pray that as we walk out this morning that we would remember that, that we would grow and that we would love and care for you, God.